everybody. Welcome back to The Smattering. Jason Hall here, and it is mailbag time. Jeff Santoro, voice of the people. How's it going? Good. Um, yeah, looking forward to this. We haven't done a mailbag in a while, but we got a, a bunch of good questions, so uh, looking forward to answering them for everyone. So anybody listening to this that did not know that we answered questions or took questions or did mailbags, how would they get said questions to us, Jeff? So the two easiest ways are probably to hit us up on Twitter at Smattering Show, um, or you can email us at thesmatteringshow at gmail.com. And on this mailbag, we actually got questions from both of those. We got some Twitter, we got some email, so it's cool to see them coming in from different places. Um, while I'm giving the housekeeping here, uh, just want to remind everyone that we also have a YouTube channel um, where we post shorter videos. Um, you can check that out. You can subscribe to that. Um, just search for The Smattering on YouTube and it'll come right up. Um, and again, we're always appreciative of um, people rating our shows and, and reviewing them and sharing them with others um, and continue to reach out. We're going to try to do um, at least one mailbag a month. So as soon as we get a few questions in, we'll start planning it. We'll get one out there for everyone. Um, so we really like the interaction with everyone who's listening. Okay, Jeff, on to, on to our first question here. So Ken Taylor, Ken on Twitter, thank you for this question. Um, I like it. And so you actually it started off with an idea for a segment, which I think is going to be great. And I think we might do a full episode um, talking about this. But what Ken asked is, says, I'm starting to think a big, a big economic trend that is worth running towards, while a lot of people run away from, is home, builder, home building. I think Jason shares this idea. Yes, Jason does. Um, but Ken goes on to ask, are there any other trends worth running to while others are running away in fear? And asks about past experiences investing like that. So as a starting point, I think you know these contrarian finding these contrarian opportunities, particularly now when you're in the middle of a market downturn, Jeff, this is when you find them. Jim Gillies is just like a great value investor um, and, and a good buddy of mine. He was sending me some messages on Slack when we were talking about the market being down. This is months ago. And like he sent me one message in all caps that said, this is what we fucking train for, right? Yeah. I mean, yeah. this, is, this is it. So Ken, yes. Yes, this is, there are some great contrarian opportunities. I want to hit on the home builders real quick, Jeff. Um, and I, I know you have some ideas too, but so, so thinking about housing in general, interest rates are higher than they've been in over a decade, right? We know that rates continue to go up. Sure. They're still well below like the peaks that we saw like back in the eighties, our parents saw back in the eighties. Um, but the, the other side of it is, right. Is this home values, right? Home prices are up so much over the past couple of years that, I mean, the, the, somebody to buy, to buy a house today, like the mortgage payment has doubled right, from where it was, you know, three or four years ago. So the housing market is, there's a lot of pressure on it. The cycle could get really ugly, but there's structural problems, right, that I think are bigger. And the structural problem is that if you look at household formations, right, which is the number to use when you're thinking about housing supply, um, is, has outgrown our supply of, of single family homes, right? It's, it's, it's a substantial issue. Um, and then you have baby boomers who are retiring in place, not moving, they're not selling their homes. A lot of them refinance on the way down, right? And they have really low mortgages and it's going to be harder for them to even think about selling. Um, even though baby boomers, you should have already paid off your mortgage 
and not continue to refinance to buy other stuff. But that's another show. So the the point is is that you have the you have these structural problems in a cyclical industry. This could be a brutal time for home builders for the next year. But I think the longer term trend is very favorable, and now is the time to be. Uh, contrarian and and look at and look at home builders that are focused on where the geographical and the and the types of properties that need to be are. We'll talk more about that on another show. Jeff, what about you? What are some contrarian ideas you see? Well, before I, I just want to pause on something you said because I think it's really important. Just because something is down in the market or is a contrarian idea doesn't necessarily mean you should run towards it. But you made a really important distinction in talking about home builders that. There's a longer term tailwind, a secular tailwind that makes home building the the, the sort of contrarian uh, thing to run towards, right? right? So that's an important distinction. It's not just because it's down now means I should buy it. You know, right. it means I okay, this is something everyone's running from. Let me take a look to see if this is a longer term trend. So to that point, I want to add me, one. More, I want to add one more piece to that that's important too. For you have to understand the industry and the implications of what does that tough period mean. Home builders use a ton of debt to buy land that they just, it's just sitting on their balance sheets, potentially losing value. They have to have enough money to cover their expenses to get through the bad times into the good times, right? Yeah. So every company that does a thing, so don't go find the stock that's down the most, the home builder's right. down the most, and think that's the one that's going to go up the most because they might be the one that don't make it, right? Or have to sell stock or raise you know, do other things that reduce shareholder value. Right. So like using home builders in the, as an example, like if you've identified the, a trend as being like you described, like we need more homes, we need more starter homes. The next thing you need to do is get to understand the industry so that when you start buying companies within that trend, you know, not only who, who are the stronger companies within that sector, but also what's going to tell you that they're actually executing on taking advantage of this long-term trend over the next coming quarters and years. And we'll talk um, more about that on a future show, like I said. Yeah. I think it'd be yeah. a great a great episode. So what's what's your what's your contrarian idea? All right. So mine is tech, but just broadly, right? So yeah. um there are there are almost every part of the tech sector has just been completely crushed this year. So I think um if you are able to identify strong companies within the tech sector just broadly, I I I actually think that's a longer term trend you you could run towards again understanding what you're buying what their key performance indicators are that will tell you that they're executing on their long term plan um but I'm curious what you think I have a specific part of the tech sector I want to talk about yeah. um I, I do too can I go yeah, first all right so let me I'll do mine and then I'll see what okay. yours is we'll see if we have the same one so mine is programmatic advertising um, all right I love this I, so, so, so these are the companies, this is the companies that are, this is where advertising dollars are going, right? They're moving from, from linear TV and, and radio where, where it's just, it gets served to everybody. It's the same right. thing and it gets served to everybody when the commercial break happens versus targeted ads and program and like the way we stream everything and getting things through the internet and all that kind of stuff, Right. Right. So like, exactly. So if I'm in the car listening to terrestrial radio or I'm watching linear you know, over the air cable TV, I'm getting an ad served to me because of where I live, um, or because of the type of show it is. And they're, they're, they're assuming that males in my age are watching, right? It's very broad based sort of, um, data that drives that. Whereas programmatic, if I'm watching a streaming show on Hulu on my Roku device, 
I'm getting ads served to me because of my exact age, my exact location, things I've browsed for on the internet. Like it is it is served to me. And and if we you and I, Jason, watch the exact same show on the same streaming service using the same streaming device at our in different locations and they know you you're watching on yours and I'm watching on mine, we're gonna get different ads based on who we are. So right. so in my mind that's and this is really important because the the thing advertising is a giant waste of money, right? As a as yeah. a category. Um, because it's it's the way that it's been done in the past. It's it's almost impossible to measure whether it actually results in whatever action you're trying to elicit, right? It's impossible. You don't know who you're who you're serving it to. You don't know what they do with it, right? Yeah, right. Programmatic answers can answer both of those, right? You you know, and when I say who, like all all the all the people that are so focused on privacy, they don't really care who you are. They care if you're in the bucket of people that are interested in whatever they're advertising, right? So they don't care about you, the name. They care about you, the number, right? So, so but it gives them that, right? So they, how they serve it. But the other thing that like companies like Trade Desk are working on is giving you the other side of the information, and that's did that entity that was served yet, did they act on it? Yeah. And there's right? so and much there's so valuable. Much. There's so much data that they have on all of us now that like I could watch, you know, a baseball game streaming on Hulu with live TV on my Roku device, an advertisement could come on for Apple and they also would know that 2 days later I bought an Apple Watch or something like that, right? So right. they're the Roku it, doesn't, it, but they 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 should and the potential Right. Well, I mean just Roku as an doesn't. example, like it that's that's the how these that's how this is designed to work, right? It, right. It's supposed right. to be targeted advertisement so that the dollars spent make more sense, but then also data on the back end to the companies where they can get it based on privacy and all that stuff that tells them the efficacy of their ad sales, right? So to me, because all the companies that do this, Trade Desk, Magnite, Pubmatic, um, even you can even extend that to Roku, Alphabet, um, Alphabet, uh, meta, right? Like any anyone that serves ads. Amazon even has an advertising um, business now. Um, it's one of their fastest growing businesses. Yep. Probably. Right. Yeah. Like to me, we're only going to see more of this in right. the future, right? right? So tech's down, these companies are down, but this is a trend that will continue. Um, so again, once you know what to look for within the programmatic ad space and who the big players are and what they're executing on or what they need to execute on to be winners in the future, that's something I think is worth running towards. So what's yours? What's your tech sector sub subsector that is worth running towards right now? Cybersecurity. Yeah. I look at some of these stocks, like I'm looking at CrowdStrike stock is down at, at the, we're recording this on October 5th. It's down almost 42%, right? And now, of course, it's down from what was a nosebleed valuation for so many cloud, tech, AI. You know, you can put this company in all of those buckets. Um, and and it's, just, it's, it's one of those things that I get it from that nosebleed peak. But again, thinking about technology, thinking about technology that's like it's, 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 it's not, this isn't ad dollars, right? So you talked about programmatic advertising, the ad markets, this is a bad time in the ad cycle because we know what's going on with the economy. We know there's a lot of fear. Companies are cutting back on that marketing spend, right? So we know that there's dollars that are not flowing there. Nobody's calling up 
Fortinet and saying, yeah, we're just, we're not going to do cybersecurity this quarter because we don't have enough money, right? Yeah. It's recession proof. I mean, it, it is like, it really is. It really, and the, but the other thing too, it's not just, it's not, it's not like waste management recession proof, which waste management's fine. It's a good business and it's going to be fine to own, but it's incredibly mature recession resistant. Right. Cybersecurity sits at the heart of all of the digital transformation that is happening across the entire public and private sector of every developed country and where every developing economy is going. I don't care if you're a steel maker or you you drive dump trucks for a living. Chances are you have an internet presence. You may be taking money, customer information um, online. You, you're, you, don't, you no longer have servers in your office anymore. Everything lives in the cloud. Cybersecurity protecting your data and your client's data has never been more important, and it's only going to be more important going forward. And it and it's not just businesses that need cybersecurity; it's public oh. sector as yeah. well. It's governments, it's school districts, it's uh, you know state, Nonprofits. local, municipalities. Like it's everyone. It's everything. It's everything. Yeah. So I, I think that's another one that's um, overlooked right now. All right. All right. So let's Next let's question. go on to to mailbag question number two here. Um, so we got an email question from a listener, Barbara, um, who asks us, uh, is it ever too late to start investing? And I, I, I know that just from my experience for the last couple of years, I know this is a question people ask a lot. Um, I'll start off and then I want to hear what you have to say. So my answer is short on this one. It's no, but. So I think it's never too late to start investing as long as the money you're investing is money you don't need in the next five or so years, right? So the same rule, I think, applies to someone who's 14 and just got their first job and wants to invest and someone who's been retired for a decade and wants to invest. It's never too late. It's always okay to start as long as the money you're putting into the market is not money you need to live on in the near future because it could be you could be 19, you could be 69, there's a chance that you could put money in the market right now and we could have a two, three, four, five year sort of down spell and you're going to need to end up selling that to live at 20% down, 30% down, 40% down. So to me, it's no, you're, it's never too late. It's just got to be money you're willing to, you don't need right away and so that I can have, A, have time to work, but also not need to be sold at a, at a loss in order, to, in order for you to live. So Jeff, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to answer the question with a story. Jeff, and I'm going to steal this story from something I read um, on NPR actually today. I read it this morning. Um, And this is about a man named Carl Allenby. Carl Allenby is 51 years old, and he was just hired um, out of med school as an attending physician in an emergency room in uh, Cleveland. He just became a doctor at 51 years of age. Um, as a teenager, out of, straight out of high school, he started working on cars. Um, spent the next couple of decades building up his knowledge. Went to trade school while he continued to work. Ended up buying an auto shop 
ended up expanding it. While he was doing that, got married, raising a family, went to college, did all these things in his 30s, in his late 30s, decided to go to college, night school, finished that up, decided he wanted to go to medical school. If, if that doesn't, to me, r- remind us that too late, too early, a lot of it is kind of a frame of mind. I, I don't know what, what does. Um, in, in, this, in the article, and I'm, I think this has been covered in a lot of um, other media outlets, but he, 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 he focused, and he, he does public speaking and stuff, and he focuses on, like, they're going to make a movie about it. Like, it's inevitable they're going to make a movie about this. And there's going to be a musical montage of that 10 years of all of the hard, grind, boring shit of him at 2 a.m. studying, <laughs> right, and putting in the work to do it. Um, and the musical montage is going to be like two minutes of this, you know, hour and a half movie or whatever. Right. But I think that's the point is that it's, it's, you have to be willing to put in the work and you have to define what your goals are. And his goal was to pursue something that from his childhood, he became interested in, um, that he was passionate about doing and that, and he, he, here he is 51 years old. He's a doctor for the first time. You know, that's, that's incredible to me. Um, if you want to be an investor, if you want to invest your money, right, you want to make that decision yourself and take control of it, everything Jeff's already said about that, I agree with. But I think you also, before you do it, you need to define the reason why, right? What is your why? Why do you, if it's just, I want more money, um, okay, is that, just, is that just a passing fancy? Is that just, you know, is, is it FOMO, right? Is it, is it your, I don't know, maybe your son-in-law has decided to pursue investing as a part-time thing and you think it's really interesting. So it's like, maybe I should do this too, right? You, there needs to be a reason, right? Is this is part of your legacy, right? Is this a way for you to generate more wealth for when you're gone, for your family or to support a cause that's important to you? Um, you, know, you need to define those things. When, when are those goals, right? Not just what are those goals, but when are them? And then start figuring out a process to make it worth it for you. I guess that's the way I think about it. Yeah, because knowing the answer to those questions will tell you how to invest, right? Like, yeah. yes, you yeah. can, provided what I said earlier, but then you need to know like what, how you want to do it, how involved you want to be. I think that's really a really good way to think about it. Um, all right, so our last question. Did I go to medical school, Jeff? Um, I'm just going to go out on a limb and say no. Um, you're welcome to have a new career in your 40s. I just don't know that medical school's the the one for you. Yeah, I'll, I'll take your advice on that. <laughs> Kelly's got a question too here, right? What's Kelly's question? Kelly on Twitter asks, um, I understand the value or reason behind a company performing a stock buyback. But what I would love for you to explain is the mechanics of how a buyback actually happens. How does the company buy back the shares? Where did the shares go, et cetera? So before you answer that, Jason, I want to really quickly talk about why a company would do a buyback because even though Kelly understands that, I, I want to make sure everyone else does. So real quick answer is after a company is done uh, with all of the expenses it has to run the company, right? So it's going to have some expenses in that, that are called um, cost of goods sold, right? Which is just basically what it costs to sell the product they're selling. Then they have all of their um, you know, regular operating, operating expenses, expenses and capital expenses. Once you get all the way to the bottom of the income statement, 
there's if there's money left over, there's a few things they can do with it. That money One left over is called free cash flow, by the way. Free cash That's flow, right? One of those things they can do is pay a dividend, or two of the things they can do is pay a dividend or buy back shares. Both of those things they could also benefit. just keep the money on the books, right? Yes. Sorry, three things. They could keep the money on the books, they can buy back shares, they can pay a dividend. The, those last two, buying back the shares and paying a dividend, benefit shareholders, right? If they buy back shares, there are now less in circulation and the uh, ones you own are now worth more just by the math involved. Well, they're, they're, uh, and, they're, they are a, I think a better way to define it is they, they represent a larger percentage of the company. Right. Yes. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's a good way to think of it. And obviously, if they pay a dividend, it's money straight back to shareholders. So uh, the, one of the reasons companies buy back shares is to reduce the shares in circulation, help shareholders out in that way. So, Jason, how do they actually do this? Yeah, so there's really, there's basically, there's two ways, three-ish ways to do this. The first is they can buy shares the same way that we do at the market, right? They can have a brokerage account and they can buy stock, right? They buy that stock back. Um, They can also make an offer uh, to investors to buy back shares at at a price, Every once in a while, you'll get a, maybe get a notification from your broker for an offer to buy your shares. Oftentimes, that's the company, right? Sometimes it's not. Sometimes it's, a, it's a, a, another party that's, that's offering to buy those shares. Um, companies can also make, um, they can, they can make arrangements from existing shareholders directly. A good example of that is uh, Berkshire Hathaway a number of years ago when the company, it hasn't been all that long ago, the company decided to start repurchasing its shares. And Warren Buffett, in his annual letters, put in like these thresholds for like the book value that they considered reasonable. They had a very large shareholder, one of the, the original investors from very early in Buffett taking over Berkshire and turning it into the holding company, um, had done very well and become a billionaire from from that investment. Um, and his 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 family was ready to move on and use that equity as money to do other things, right? And they actually negotiated directly with Berkshire to sell the shares directly to to the company, right, at a set price. Um, those are rare, but sometimes we do see that when large stockholders might work a deal to sell it. Um, another Berkshire deal, um, they traded their shares of Procter & Gamble to Procter & Gamble and Procter Gam- Gamble paid with Duracell, right? They, they bought stock with batteries, basically. So Berkshire Hathaway acquired Duracell and gave Procter & Gamble its, its stock back, right? So all of those are ways that companies can acquire, reacquire a portion of their own stock, okay? So, so that's, that's, that's how how they can get it. The next part of the question that Kelly asked is, um, how do, so, so where do the shares go? Um, I used to be really wrong a long time ago, like 10 or 12 years ago. Like I was wrong about this. I'm like, oh, as soon as they buy them, they just, they just disappear, right? Only if the company retires the shares, right? If the, comp- if the shares are retired, then shares outstanding go down. But if you look on a company's balance sheet, sometimes you'll see something called treasury stock or treasury shares, these are that's shares of the company that the company owns, right? So sometimes they keep them 
they're not part of the float anymore. Like the float is only like the shares that are not held by closely related parties, right? Basically the, 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 the number of shares that actually are available to trade at any one given time, right? Um, so sometimes they, most of the time, the shares are retired and they go away, right? And the shares outstanding come down. Sometimes companies keep them um, on the books as, as treasury, as treasury shares. I want to I add a couple things about this while we're talking about it, Jeff, because I think it's really important because companies always tout when they do share repurchases. Sometimes you look at a company like NVR, for example, or Texas Instruments, for example. These are companies that have brought their shares outstanding down like significantly. Like Texas Instruments has bought more than, like they've bought almost half the company back over the past 20 years. But then you look at a, uh, a company, uh, I'm not even going to name any names because I don't want to beat up because I'd be here all day beating up everybody. But like tech companies issue more stock all the time, right? Whether they're raising capital or as shares for compensation for employees. And their share counts are constantly moving up. So for most of those companies, when they're repurchasing shares, all they're doing is soaking up shares. They're using cash to soak up shares that they've given to employees, Right, as part right. of their so they're, they're buying back shares just to offset the shares they're issuing, if if they're even offsetting it, right? So or, you need yeah, to understand, to. Yeah. right? They're trying to. So you need to understand the implications. Are there? Are you? Is it really resulting in taking that pizza and uncutting the slices and making the slices bigger with each slice? Of course, representing a share of the company, or are they just using cash to buy more slices of pizza to refill the slices of pizza that they're giving? to employees. And you need to understand the implications of that because this is where the idea that stock-based compensation doesn't matter is a fallacy because if a comp- because it increases the share count, reduces how much of the company you own as an investor, and eventually company's going to take cash off the balance sheet to repurchase that shares, boom, there goes cash the company no longer has, right? Yeah. So I think when you see an announcement of a share buyback, the very first thing you should do is go see, like, what are the shares outstanding and how has that been trending? And another thing you can do is um, figure out things like take revenue and divide it by the shares outstanding or take earnings and or take free cash flow and divide that by the shares outstanding. Because sometimes you'll see revenues going up, revenue per share is going down because they're issuing more shares than they're buying back or they're issuing shares and not buying any back. Um, so it's, you know, it, it's one of those things you want to look at a little bit more closely to make sure that the, that the, the share buyback they're touting is actually beneficial to shareholders. Yeah. hundred percent, hundred percent. You just need to understand the implications. That's the key. That's the key. All right, Jeff, I think that's it for this uh, mailbag, right? Yeah, we got them all. We did. We did. All right, friends. Thanks for the questions. Please keep them coming in. Just a reminder, whether it's through our Twitter, whether it's through our email. Get those at the beginning of the show. If you missed them, go back and you can get that if you have a question for us. Get us into them. We'll try to do one of these about once a month or so. Again, these are our answers. We're giving our answers. I think they can be useful. But the hard investing questions out there, you have to come up with your own answer. You have to answer it for yourself. But you know what, Jeff, I, for one, I believe in our listeners. I do too. They can do it. They can do it. You can do it, people. Thanks for listening. All right, Jeff, we'll see you next time, buddy. See you next time.